If you'd like to come on back in and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. We are going to uh, look at the whole chapter today, but we're going to read just down to verse 20 for the sake of context. So if you'd begin reading with me, we also have it here on the screen in case you don't have a Bible. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Then the Sadducees, excuse me, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But when Jesus perceived it, he said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Father, thank you for your word this morning and for the reading of your word. And as always, we look to you to be our guide and to be our teacher. And so we trust that you will speak to us because we have gathered here in your name around your word for the purpose of worshiping you and receiving from you. And Lord, I trust and believe that every person here and listening online is doing so because they are seeking you. 
And so we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in great power and in great wonder today. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So we're in a continuing situation here. Last week we had mentioned that Jesus had sort of left the main Jewish areas and he was now out in the regions of the Pharisees, excuse me, the, uh, the Gentiles. And it seems that the scribes and the Pharisees continued to sort of follow him around. Uh, they had their limits. They wouldn't go into certain regions, but they were following him around. And in this particular case, uh, remember at the end of the last chapter, he sent the multitude uh, into the, away and got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. So right there, kind of on the edge of Jewish-Gentile territory. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see in verse 1, came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, in many cases, in many situations, they had been with Jesus, witnessing what he was doing. They saw many signs and wonders. They saw the dead raised. They saw people who, whom they knew and the community knew were, were sick and were lame and were maimed and were blind. And they witnessed Jesus healing those people and doing miraculous things that only the Son of God could do. And yet they have come asking for a sign. The word translated sign here means much more than simply a miracle or a demonstration of power. It means a wonder by which one may recognize a person or confirm who he is. So when they asked him to do this sign, it wasn't just like asking a magician to do a trick and to entertain us. They were asking him to confirm who he was by doing a certain type of sign. And for them, that would have been something that was significant to them in the world of their understanding of God. And so Jesus answered and said to them, rather than just directly answering them, this is the way he pretty much does it, right? He, he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now today, of course, we're all kind of tied to our phones, right? We can't tell the weather unless we go to our weather app. Is this true? Okay. In fact, I just happened to see this week, I was looking on a website, I'm trying to help a person uh, who's dealing with some addictions and I was looking at some inpatient treatment options for him. And as I was looking at the conditions they treated, one of the conditions they treat, they called technology addiction. Hopefully I don't have to explain that, right? Because we all probably have it here in this room. How many of you panic when you can't find your phone or you've left your house without your phone? Okay, a few of us. I'll raise my hand. So at any rate, we can't tell the weather unless we have our weather app, right? But of course, they were people of agriculture. There, were, there was no weather people. There was no one paid to tell you what the weather would be like. It was just one day to the next, and they generally knew what the seasons brought. And so they would look up into the sky as the sun was rising or the sun was setting and try to ascertain what was happening. And so Jesus brought this to mind, and he says, you know, you can look up with your eyes, and you can see what's happening in the heavens, and 
and on the earth, and you can discern what kind of weather it might be over the next few hours or, or, or for the next day. But he says, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the face of the times. Now, what's more important, knowing what the weather is or knowing what time it is according to God's clock, prophetically? He says, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So how would any generation know what time it is? And I would submit to you it's according to his word. It's by reading the scriptures and understanding what the prophets have said. And for their situation, Jesus is now saying to them, I've already been here doing things in your presence. I've worked miracles. I've healed people. And certainly the Old Testament referred to the fact that the Messiah would do these things. And Jesus is saying, you can look at the sky and tell what kind of weather is going to be coming the next few hours or the next day. And here I am, in essence, right before you. And you have witnessed and seen of everything I've done and you've heard of it. The word has spread abroad of what I have done. And thus the large crowds of people following Jesus wherever he went. And yet you cannot discern the signs of the times, meaning that I am here, that the Messiah is here. It's interesting, my wife and I were talking just the other day, and this is sometimes how things go in our house. One of us is reading the news on our phone because we can't stomach watching it on TV on pretty much any channel. And so we're reading our news, and then one of us will comment to the other about what's happening and read maybe a snippet or show a picture of a headline. And as we do that, we often look at one another and say, the end can't be that far away because of the craziness and the madness that's happening in our world right now. You have to look no further than uh, a lot of the second epistles, 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, the little epistle of Jude, certainly the book of Revelation. And when we get to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 in a few weeks, there as well. These signs are clearly called out for us. In fact, we've been praying about where we're going to go next after Matthew. We've got a number of weeks before we get there, but I I believe the Lord wants us to go to the book of Daniel. So when we finish with Matthew, we're going to go back to Daniel. You know, we did, as a church, uh, we did the book of Revelation in 2019. And so we're going to now bring Daniel into play because I believe Daniel is happening very much before our eyes. And so learning to understand the signs of the times, how do we do that? It's according to God's word. It's by reading God's word. And he says here, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So people looking for a miracle, looking for the next awe and wonder. And listen, if you have to be convinced by a sign, by a miracle, then do you really have faith or are you just amazed and awed? One of the stories that's long been one of my favorites and I tend to to use heavily at funerals is in Luke chapter 16, where you find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And there it gives you the the, sort of the story as it is, you know, on earth and the rich man's in his house faring sumptuously every day. Lazarus, the rich, the, the poor man is outside the rich man's gate and just hoping to get something from the trash every day to scavenge, to survive And then it fast forwards to they both have died. 
Now they're on the, the other side of life. And it shows us that the rich man in that particular scenario happens to be in the place uh, of Hades. And Lazarus happens to be in Abraham's bosom, which as Jesus is telling the story, is heaven. And in that situation, as they interact and the, 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 the rich man is calling back across to Father Abraham, who's holding this man, he says, you know, can you please... Send someone back from the dead to tell my brothers so that they will believe. And he says, well, no, we can't, we can't do that. And he says, well, why not? They, they need to send someone. We need to send someone back so that they will believe. I don't, basically, he's saying, I don't want them to be here where I am. They're on the same path that I was on. They need to be warned. And he says, look, they have the, the, the word of God. They have the prophets. They have the law. If they won't understand that, if they won't heed that, if they won't read that, then there's no hope for them. And we stop and we think about that and we think, look, there's the word of God. But also, and I've heard this said before, I'm sorry, I can't give you the attribution, but the, the saying is that you and I are probably the only Bible most people will ever read. So you see, who we are and how we live our lives is important. We're going to find that a little more significant as we go on this morning. But this wicked and adulterous generation, as Jesus is calling the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they seek after a sign. They're looking for Jesus to validate according to the way they want to see it validated. And he says, it's not going to happen. The other parallel passages that talk about uh, this, uh, let me just go back up here, Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 12. It's, uh, Jesus again invokes that no sign will be given this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And of course, he brought that up a few chapters ago. And what he's saying there very simply is this. The sign of the prophet Jonah is the sign of the resurrection. That the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. He says it right here in verse 4. I will give no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jo- Jesus is validating who Jonah was. He's validating that his story was real. And as we read the, 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 the prophet Jonah, those four chapters that talk about his life and how God had called him and wanted him to go and to minister to the Ninevites. I, every time I read it, I always walk away kind of going, wow, Lord, it's so amazing that you used this reluctant prophet who didn't want to go and he preached a message that wasn't really the message you wanted him to preach, but it was sort of a weak message. And yet you used it to save the entire city. And I walk away from the the story of the prophet Jonah thinking that's sort of the point. And Jesus says, hey, the point of Jonah was he, he went into the belly of the fish and he came out of the belly of the fish after three days. He was essentially resurrected. And he's saying Jonah's the sign pointing to me, the Messiah. And I love how Jesus, how the Lord, brings us an interpretation of Scripture that we hadn't previously considered. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Now imagine those guys, he says, think about Jonah, and then he turns and walks away, and they're kind of scratching their heads going, well, Jonah, okay, he, he did, disobeyed the Lord. They're probably thinking about all those things, and they're missing the fact that Jesus says, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And then he came out. 
And so it shall be for the Son of Man, for Jesus. Now when his disciples, verse 5, had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now previously we had spoken of leaven, going through the parables of the kingdom, back in Matthew 13. And we referred to the fact that leaven is almost always used to refer to sin, to refer to people offending God, that, that sin is what caused us to be in the condition of fallenness and needing a Savior, needing to be saved. And Paul, of course, said to the Corinthian church, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, speaking of how we as believers within the body of Christ, we may think our lives don't matter. What people don't see or what they don't know about us doesn't matter. But he's saying, no, no, the, the, the kingdom of God, more importantly, the church of God is a spiritual gathering of people, not just a physical gathering of people. And how we live our lives and the sin that we embrace in our lives as we come into the presence of the Lord and as we come into the gathering of the saints, we bring our sin with us. And that's a good thing. God, this is a spiritual hospital. God wants to heal us and he wants to, to minister to us and he wants to conform us to the image of Christ. Yet, if we bring sin into the church and we keep bringing sin into the church, meaning that we uh, are in habitual sin and repeated sin and we refuse to repent, then a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, we can negatively influence the body of Christ through our sin. And he says here to the, scribes, to the disciples, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now they had just had that interaction with them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had different views on the law of God. They had different views about different things, meaning you know, some believed only in the, the first five books of the law, the, the books of Moses, and they didn't accept any of the rest. They didn't accept the prophets. They didn't accept the Psalms. They said only the first five books are the Bible. And they have these different views, and yet we find them coming together to, to unify against Jesus. And as they're walking away, Jesus saying now to his disciples, beware and take heed of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as was so often the case, they went, well, so he's upset because we forgot to bring uh, bread to make the sandwiches. And that's what they're saying to one another. And Jesus was aware of it, and he heard them talking. He says, oh, you have little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you didn't bring any bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? And isn't that just like us? Listen, I always think about these things. We read it and we think, huh, duh, they should have gotten that. But listen, if I were there, I probably would have been with them going, maybe one of us should run out and get some bread because obviously Jesus is upset about us not having bread. And he says, no. I'm speaking to you spiritually. I'm not speaking to you physically. And Jesus did this often, didn't he? Didn't he do this with Nicodemus? When he was speaking to Nicodemus and he said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus scratched his head and said, well, how do I go back into my mother's womb and get reborn? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, born again spiritually, born of the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus in that exchange in John chapter 3, how is it that you are the teacher of Israel 
and you don't understand these things. A very similar thing here in Matthew 16, 8. Oh, you have little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Now, Jesus had said to them a number of times as a group of disciples, oh, you have little faith, or where is your faith? And we both take comfort from that because, again, that's where we often are. But at the same time, that was a rebuke of Jesus to them because they were constantly living in the physical realm and Jesus was trying to point them to the spiritual realm. They were living in the realm of the flesh and he was pointing them to the realm of the spirit. Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Their little faith kept them from understanding his teaching and depending on his power to meet their needs. Let me say that again. Their little faith kept them from understanding his teaching and depending on his power to meet their needs. He says, do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Hey, fellas, remember? This was just like a week ago. Remember when we did that? Remember how cool that was? How we prayed and we we held up the the basket of the, the loaves and the fishes and as we prayed... And we gave thanks and we brought it down and we broke it. And then all of a sudden, you guys had baskets. Where did those come from? Remember? And those baskets were full. Do you remember that? And as you took the baskets and you fed the 5,000 men besides women and children, probably the 15,000 or so people, every time a basket came back into your hand, it was full. Do you remember that? And we fed all 15,000 people. And what happened at the end of that, guys? Do you remember this? You had 12 baskets full. Remember, they were the size of an offering plate, kind of a basket, like, a, like a, just a regular plate. And you guys had food to eat. Do you guys remember that? Or do you remember the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Remember last week we looked at that and we said the word for baskets there was more like a large sort of a, a peck kind of a basket, like a laundry hamper. And we took up way more from feeding the 4,000, which was probably at least 12,000, than we did when we fed the 5,000. Don't you remember what God did? Don't you remember what the Lord did in our hands? Don't you remember as we stood there and we did this, we witnessed live the miracle of God, just like the feeding of the children of Israel in the desert? Don't you remember that? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? I'm not talking to you about physical things. I'm talking to you about spiritual things. But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, meaning their teaching, meaning their doctrine. Jesus will say to them a little bit later as we get to these things, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, that they were, would not lift a finger They laid heavy burdens on the people, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help those people with those heavy burdens. They walked around in their religious garb, and they looked down their noses at people. And they frowned upon people on the Sabbath as they were trying to simply eke out an existence and to, to make a living for themselves. And they would walk around and invoke the law on people. If their animal fell into the ditch on the Sabbath, they would say, you just got to leave your animal there and go get them the day after the Sabbath. They were just very, very legalistic, and they sucked the life out of people. They didn't come to bring the life of God to people. They came to lay the law of God on people and to restrict people and to draw them down rather than to build them up. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because their leaven, their doctrine, their teaching is not true. It's not real. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring hope. And Jesus is, by contrast, calling to their minds all the things that he did. Whose doctrine is more real? My doctrine or their doctrine? And then they understood, verse 12, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So finally, they're starting to get it. Now they're starting to go, oh, no, I get it. He, was, he wasn't talking about bread. He said leaven, which means yeast. And we thought he meant bread, but he really meant spiritual truth. He meant the teaching of God. So now as they continue to travel in verse 13, now they've worked their way up. If you were looking at a map, they've now moved north up to this region of Caesarea Philippi. And if you look on your map so you don't get confused in the back of your Bible, if you're looking at the map of Israel, remember it's about the size and the shape of the state of New Jersey, they hit Jerusalem roughly being a little lower than halfway. They were up in the Galilee region. And they had been traveling around Galilee. Then last week they went out to Tyre and Sidon. Now they came back to Galilee. Uh, now they're going up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. There's another region called Caesarea out on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea. But there's a region called Caesarea Philippi way up north, probably today in what's called Jordan, up by the headwaters of, of the Jordan River. And Jesus came into this region of Caesarea Philippi, which, by the way, is a name, uh, Caesar Philip. It's named for. So this is another pagan or Gentile region that Jesus has gone back to. Most likely, he's taking his disciples there to try and get some rest. Remember, a couple of chapters ago, he was trying to find rest, and everywhere he went, there was a crowd. So now they've gone way up north. It's about 120 miles north of Jerusalem, or probably about 40 miles north of Capernaum. So Jesus brings his disciple into this region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a very pagan region. This region is full of superstition. This is where some people felt the god Pan was born, and they had temples to Pan, and they had a temple to, to one of the Caesars there, and they had other pagan temples all in the region. So they've gone up into this wicked pagan region, and that's the setting, that's the backdrop for this conversation. Jesus, when he came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, let's get it straight in our minds. Jesus is not asking this question because he's interested in the opinion of men, meaning he's kind of seeking a popularity contest. He wants to know where people stand in their understanding of who he is and what he's doing. And so here's what the disciples say in verse 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they're saying, this is what we hear. This is the talk among the people. So some people think John the Baptist, you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had already died. We read about that. John the Baptist, as we know, historically was Jesus's cousin, and we know that John the Baptist was ministering at the same time as Jesus. And we know as we read the story about John the Baptist that he was out in the wilderness by the region of Galilee baptizing people, a baptism of repentance. And his basic message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that was John. 
not Jesus. And, but some was saying, we think Jesus is John, almost like he's reincarnated or something. Some say Elijah because the Old Testament had said that one day someone like the prophet Elijah would rise again. So they're thinking, maybe it's Elijah. Then they said maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, meaning the people had this idea that other prophets or, or people, uh, someone like the prophets might be manifest later to bring messages from God. Remember what we call the silent years, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People were wondering, there was no word of the Lord in those days and they just had the Old Testament scriptures. So the people are wondering, is Jesus maybe perhaps the manifestation of one of these people? And he said, okay, okay. Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And this is the question that every human being has to deal with. This is the question that every person needs to answer. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And as we think about this for the next few minutes, I want you to formulate in your own mind, hopefully you already have the answer, But how do you answer that question? Who do you say that I am? This is Jesus speaking, asking you and me this morning, this question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, being the bold person that he was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter was absolutely right. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't figure that out by yourself, buddy. God revealed it to you. And know this, that whenever anyone understands who Jesus is, it's not because they're wicked smart, It's not because they're intelligent, not because they're somewhere on the above average scale. It's because God has revealed it to them. Do you understand this morning that salvation, knowledge of God, comes from a revelation of God? It's God revealing himself to people. It's interesting that the Old Testament says in at least a couple of places that he will reveal himself to those who are seeking him to those who want to know who he is. And there's a, when there's a genuine faith where there's somebody who's seeking, someone who wants to know Jesus, who wants to know the Lord, then God will reveal himself. But, you know, we, we hear stories all the time, and certainly in these last days we've been hearing of stories of people having dreams in the middle, of e- middle East where in, the, in, in their dreams, Jesus is appearing to them, and they, they never really heard of Jesus except through the, the Quran. But now they're, they're seeing Jesus in their dreams, and they're waking up, and they're believing in Christ because God is revealing himself to them. So Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And by the way, that's the only right answer to the question. So it's an open book test. Here's the answer. Hopefully, God's revealed that to you in your heart, but he's also given you the answer here, and Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, so if you've heard it and you've believed it, it wasn't because necessarily you heard it from my lips, it's because the Lord has revealed himself to you. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. 
This was a gracious act of God that God revealed himself to Peter. Now, this is in stark contrast to the doctrine, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are people who were allegedly seeking God, but they couldn't find him. They were reading his word. They'd memorized his word. Remember the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes in particular were the people, they were the copyists of the law. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege in your life of copying something over and over and over. It's a great learning technique. But once you do that, you know, it kind of sticks. It kind of goes through that mechanism of your hand and you're writing it on the paper and it's kind of just going into your brain and it's getting etched in your brain as you're writing it on the paper. These, These people knew the word of God and yet they didn't know God. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. One commentator brought this out. It was probably within sight of Caesar's temple that Jesus announced the surprise. He would not yet establish his kingdom, but he would build his church. If anyone else asked, who do men say that I am? We would think him either mad or arrogant, but in the case of Jesus... A right confession of who he is is basic to salvation. His person and his work go together and they must never be separated. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so God had revealed himself to Peter. And Jesus, as he says this here, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The first time Jesus, by the way, has mentioned the church in the gospels is right here in Matthew 16. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says, on this rock, this has become a point of great contention among people in the church. Of course, the Catholic Church has taken this to mean that Peter himself was the rock. And he was the one upon whom Jesus would build his church. So if we stop and think about that, he's saying, upon this man, upon this person, I'm building my church this human being, this frail, flawed, sinful human being. And I don't think that makes any sense. And I think the language helps us. The Old Testament scriptures recognize the rock as a symbol of God. Over and over in the Old Testament, and we could, we could do a whole study here of where does it say things like, uh, the Lord is my rock and my fortress in Psalm 18, or, or who is God except the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? But let's investigate the Greek words that the Holy Spirit led Matthew to use here. Thou art Petros, a stone, and upon this rock, Petra, a large rock, I will build my church. What is the Petra? And I believe, and I think the majority of people, uh, at least in what we might call evangelical Christianity, believe that we're talking here about the confession of Peter. What he said, which was, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that rock, upon that confession, I will build my church. And you say, well, where do you get that from? Let's look a little bit further in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul wrote, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Acts chapter 4, and these are just a few places. 
uh, Peter's preaching, and it says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here, meaning the man who was healed. And he says in Acts 4.11, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which, which we must be saved. And we could go on and list many other scriptures. That's only three. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, being the rock. And that fits perfectly with what Peter said, that yet you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon that rock, upon that confession, I will build my church. Not upon a flawed man, but upon the truth, upon the confession of who Jesus is. And he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. People again look at this passage and they think Peter was, quote, given the keys. In fact, if you look at the symbology of the Catholic Church on the, the large hat, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it, that the, the Pope wears, you'll see the symbols of keys. And it's based on this passage of Scripture. And Jesus is using this analogy here because keys are, are a symbol of authority, a symbol of power. And as he speaks here of this issue of binding and loosing, this was a common thing in their day that uh, it just means approving and disapproving. And this is what happens in our courts all the times. Things are bound and loose. Interpretations of the law are given. For example, somebody wrote in, in one of the commentaries, it was very interesting reading, that uh, what happens if your dog dies on your doorstep? Is your house clean or unclean? Because a dog was an unclean animal. And so their rendering or their binding and loosing would have been, if his head and his nose was pointing into the house, it would have been declared unclean. But if his head or his nose was pointing away from the house, it would have been clean. And this is the kind of nonsense <laughs> that they would rule on so that you could be declared clean or unclean. And Jesus is saying here, that stuff doesn't matter. I'm going to give you guys the understanding. And he certainly comes back and reinforces this in John's gospel, when John's 13, 14, 15, 16, where he talks about when the Spirit comes, he will lead and guide you into all truth, and he will call to remembrance all the things that I have taught you. Or by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, where the Jerusalem council takes place, and the dispute that was brought before the Jerusalem council, which was the, the elders, the Jewish elders at that point of that first century church that had been founded starting in Acts chapter 2, we're now about 12 or, or so, maybe 15 years into the church by the time we get to Acts chapter 15. And they brought to them this issue of what do we do with all these Gentiles who are getting saved? We have our Jewish brothers and sisters who are saying they need to follow the law. And then we have others saying, no, they don't. What do we do? And so this idea of the keys to the kingdom and binding and loosing, that's what was happening. And, and when that Jerusalem council ruled, they said, look, stay away from things strangled and, you know, adulterous situations. Uh, but basically just follow the Lord. We're not going to lay anything else on you. We're not going to lay on you a circumcision and that you must follow the law and, and all the other things from the Jewish law. That's the old covenant. We're now under a new covenant. And so they're now bringing in interpretation, bringing in understanding. And so Jesus saying here, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the symbols of authority. 
And I will be giving to you guys to establish the church and the foundation of the church. And I think it's unanimous in everything I read and study that the apostles were the ones who were given this. In the book of Ephesians, as we read just a few minutes ago, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then Jesus commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that that he was Jesus the Christ. He didn't want them to tell people yet because he's still on his way to Jerusalem. His ministry is not over. He couldn't handle crowds that were bigger than what they were already handling. It wasn't yet his time, a common theme. And so as we continue, we come to verse 21 and he says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, thinking for just a moment about the answer to that question, who do you say that I am? I don't want us to miss this point this morning before we move on. That is the point, that is the question where people get it wrong. It's where the cults get it wrong. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons get the answer to that question wrong. Because when you ask someone, who do you say Jesus is, if they give you an answer other than what has been revealed to us here in this passage of Scripture, it's the wrong answer. It's not who Jesus is. And when people get it wrong... When they don't understand who Jesus is, everything else is wrong. It throws their whole life off. Their whole doctrine is wrong. Their whole understanding of Scripture is wrong if they don't understand who he is. Let me remind you this morning of that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that says, The natural man, meaning the unbeliever, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are spiritually discerned, their foolishness to him. But the spiritual man can understand all these things because these things are spiritually discerned. It means the Spirit of God has come into their lives and brought the understanding. And they've been born again. They've been given that understanding. So we need to understand that it is a spiritual revelation. And so this morning, I I don't want any of us here who are listening to miss the fact of who Jesus is. Maybe as you heard those words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Maybe that was a revelation to you. Maybe you thought there was a lot more to it than that. Or maybe you thought that Jesus was somebody else. Because so often when you ask people this on the streets, they'll say things like, well, he was a good man. I know he was, he lived. He was some historical figure. He might've been a prophet. I don't know. But who is he really? He's the the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So he's the Messiah, the one whom God sent, but he's the son of the living God, meaning he is God. And when people deny the deity of Jesus, they're in the wrong place. And so when Jesus comes to this point here where he begins to show his disciples that he has to suffer... And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. It's because of who they understand he is, which is not what Peter said. 
And so when Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, it's because they don't think he is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. And he says, he must be killed and be raised the third day. Now, twice Jesus has already said in their hearing, in their presence, about the sign of Jonah. And I would have to believe, while certainly not everything Jesus said is recorded for us, that Jesus must have explained to them because they also probably had the question of, what do you mean? Why do you keep bringing Jonah up, Jesus? What's the point? And so Peter now, remember, Jesus said to Peter just a few minutes earlier, oh, oh, Peter, man, God revealed that to you. God spoke to you, man. You heard God. Do you remember how exciting it was the first time you could say you heard the voice of God in your life? Maybe it was when you understood the scriptures or maybe it was when you just felt like the, the Holy Spirit spoke to you and gave you wisdom or knowledge about something. And now Peter kind of living in that moment, he says, Lord, I, I hear from God. You said it yourself. I, I hear from your father. Uh, he takes him aside to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Remember, I hear from God. Well, let's remind ourselves here, while it may seem painfully obvious to us, rebuking Jesus is always a bad thing. Because you're always wrong. You're always going to be wrong when that happens. So we can see it here in this passage of Scripture. We can look at it, and it's humorous to us in a sense. But how often do we do this in our real lives? When the Lord might be speaking to us, we're reading the scriptures and we know we're supposed to be doing something, but we're not. And we're not doing it because we don't want to do it. Because it rubs us the wrong way, because we just haven't yet come to that place in our walk where we're ready to give that thing up. Aren't we essentially rebuking Jesus by saying, Lord, I... Not right now. You're, that's, that's okay. Maybe that's for, for the more spiritual people, but it's not for me. I believe in you. I've got my fire insurance here. Here's the policy, Lord, where it says I believed in you on this date. But right now, I'm not ready to give that area of my life to you. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And, and of course, a few minutes earlier, you've heard from my father. Now he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Wow, talk about a schizophrenic faith. A few minutes ago, you were, you were the man. Now you're the man, little limb. You're, you're not the man anybody wants to be around. He calls him Satan. The word Satan means adversary. You've gone from being my friend, Peter, to being my adversary. You are an offense to me, Peter. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And he's, he's bringing to light Peter's heart. What was in Peter's heart when he said to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you? Peter's saying, look, Lord, we don't want you to die. We want you to stay here with us. We want to continue. In fact, the next, the, the next chapter in the Gospel of Mark, if you're, you're following over there, uh, is the, the transfiguration. And in that moment, remember, they're up on the mountain and the transfiguration happens, and you know Peter falls asleep, and the other Peter, James, and John, and then they see Jesus, and they're like, "Well, who are the guys? Okay, one of those is Elijah, one of those is Moses." And then when it's all over, Peter comes running over and says, "Oh, let's just build three tabernacles here, Lord. Let's just stay here, right?" 
Let's just, we just want to be with you. We for it no more. No, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You see, God has a plan, and God's plan often doesn't line up. It doesn't jive with our understanding of how we want things to be, not just from the point of view of who God is and what he's doing, but because of who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. Whenever I get to interact with people and we talk about family and whatnot and they say, where's your family? And we start talking about how our kids are scattered all over, you know, in Dallas and in Seattle and in Italy and, you know, our grandkids are being born and brought up without us and, you know, they only know us as the FaceTime grandparents and, you know, don't you want your kids to be there with you? And yeah, of course we do. Don't we want to see those grandkids grow up? Of course we do. But you know what I want more? And I mean this with all my heart. I want them to follow God. And if God says, my assignment for you, Landon and Rachel, is to be in Italy and be over there ministering to those people and taking the word of God and the gospel to them and building my church, then that's okay. Because you know what? I will see them on the other side, right? I'll be with them in heaven. I want to be with them now in the worst way. There are many tears shed that we can't be together. But what Jesus wants is the most important thing. And when we fight against the will of the Lord in someone's life, then we are fighting against God and essentially we are rebuking Jesus. And we don't want to be on that side of things, do we? You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God. You see, that's what he wants for us. He wants us to be mindful of the things of God. What are the things of God? Well, they're found in his word. And as we read his word, he speaks to us about our lives. And the Holy Spirit applies the word of God to our lives. And sometimes he gives us an abrupt course redirection. Sometimes he calls us to do things that are crazy. Remember in Acts chapter 16, I love reading that passage where Paul and, the, and his party were, were there and they were trying to decide where they go. And as you read it, it says, well, we wanted to go this way. We wanted to basically go north, but the Holy Spirit didn't permit us. We wanted to go you know, east. We couldn't go there. We wanted to go south. We couldn't go there. But the Holy Spirit basically kind of forced us sort of northwest. And the way it happened was that night in a dream... The Lord spoke to him, and there was a man of Macedonia saying, come over here, come over here and help us. And so he wakes up the next morning. He's going, well, that door is closed. That door is closed. That door is closed. I had this dream. Are dreams even legit? I don't know. But it seemed to be the Lord. And so he tells his friends, and they sort of go, okay, well, it seems like the Lord's directing us. So they go, and all of a sudden their journey just happens. Their journey was prevented and hindered in all the other directions. And we look at something like that, and we say, that's crazy, God can't possibly lead like that today. And I'm going to tell you that he does. He's done it to me. And I've seen him do it in others' lives. And he leads us. And he guides us. And he led them there. And what happened? They walk into the region of Macedonia, into the foremost city, which is the city of what? Philippi. And as they walk in, Paul did what he always does. He goes to say, where's the tabernacle? Where's the uh, synagogue? Well, there's not even 11 Jewish men in the city, which was the minimum requirement to have a a synagogue. So he says, well, 
We know what the law says. If there's no synagogue, then people meet near the closest body of water, which is a river. Where's the river? Oh, it's over there. Okay, he goes down there. What does he find? A group of women worshiping the Lord together. And he walks down and just begins to share the word of the Lord. And this lady, Lydia, gets saved. And he says, why don't you come to my house and stay? Because she was a woman of means. And as she brought him there, her whole household got saved. The Philippian church gets established. And they go out preaching the gospel in the streets of Philippi. And then they get thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And as they're in jail about midnight, the Lord delivered them. Remember, as the Lord shook the foundation and Paul and Silas are there. And what happened in that moment? Their, their, their shackles fell off, the doors you know, burst open, and they could walk out of there if they wanted to. But the jailer, who would have been killed, who would have have suffered their penalty if they had escaped, comes running in, falling down before them, you know, first checking to see if they're there because that was certain death for him. And he comes in amazed at what's just happened because he saw the earthquake, he felt it, and he walks in. And Paul and Silas had been singing praise to God all night. And he was probably like, can we please shut these guys up? And God moves in this miraculous way. And what happens in that moment? He falls on his knees and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And another soul is not only added to the kingdom of God, to the church of God, but added to the Philippian church. And then he takes the boys to his house and he cleans up, up their wounds and his whole household gets saved. And it's all because they couldn't do what they wanted to do back on the other side. They couldn't go north. They couldn't go west. They couldn't go south. And the Holy Spirit forced them to go in one direction, which wasn't their plan. And you understand that God has a plan that goes beyond what you and I can understand. God doesn't reveal the plan to us. He reveals the next step to us. Amen? Do you understand this? So stop fighting against God. We want to be mindful of the things of God, but we don't want to be mindful of the things of men. Too often that's what we do. And then he says in the final verses here, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, Let's stop right there and ask the question, do you desire to come after him? Do you desire to follow him? Do you truly desire to follow him? Because the next words are harsh to our ears. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Don't we live in a generation, don't we live in a time where more than any other time, our selfishness and our self-centeredness is promoted, it's heralded, it's held up as an idol? I mean, isn't this what gay pride is all about? Be who you want to be. Lift yourself up. Become the best version of you. Be who you want to be. You've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. That's what he said here. If anyone desires to come after me. You see, this is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following Jesus. Here's the different approaches. Deny yourself as opposed to living for yourself. Taking up your cross, meaning ignoring the cross. We'll talk about that in a moment. Following Christ versus following the world. Losing your life for his sake versus saving our lives for our own sake. Forsaking the world or gaining the world. Keeping our soul or losing our soul. Sharing his reward and glory or losing his reward and glory. You see, these are the contrasts 
between coming after him to, and we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. One person said it this way, hopefully it will be helpful. To deny self does not mean to deny things. It means to give yourself wholly to Christ, to share in his shame and death. Paul described this in Romans 12 and Philippians 3, as well as in Galatians 2.20. To take up a cross does not mean to carry burdens or to have problems. To take up the cross means to identify with Christ and his rejection, his shame, his suffering, and his death. Denying ourself means that we choose to follow Christ. It means that we don't live as the world lives. It means that we don't listen to what the world says are the right things to do. The world is wrong. The world never gets the answer to the question right, who do you say that I am? And if you want to follow someone who doesn't get the answer to that question right, you are choosing to walk in darkness. We cannot follow the world. We cannot follow popular opinion. We cannot take a survey on social media and decide who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if we want to follow him, there will be an exclusivity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, underscore that, no one comes to the Father except through me. When it says take up the cross, the cross was a symbol of capital punishment. If we were back in the middle of eight Middle Ages, we might have said take up the guillotine. In our modern days, we might say the electric chair. Maybe there's the symbol of the needle for the lethal injection for those who, who are executed on death row. Whatever it might be, it's that symbol of judgment against crime. It's the punishment against crime. So let him take up his cross, meaning to take up your cross meant you were picking up your cross. Remember, Jesus did this. He had to carry the, remember there was the cross beam and then there was the vertical post. And what they did when they carried their cross was they were carrying that cross beam up to the hill. And so to take up your cross means you're taking up the sentence of death. And the scriptures reveal to us we're dying to the world. We're dying to sin. We're dying to darkness. We're being born again to light. We're being born again to new life. We're being born again to follow Christ. So to take up our cross is to say no to the things of the world. Remember, James says to be a friendship with the world is enmity with God. We can't have a foot in both worlds. We can't have a foot in the world and have everything be great and have a foot in the church or in the kingdom of God and think we're okay. We're either for him or against him. That's what Jesus said. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Meaning, it's Jesus or nothing. We're either all in or we're all out. And some of us need to deal with that. Some of us need to square with that truth because some of us envision our lives as sort of that spectrum. Here's that sort of crazy, zealous, committed to Jesus line, and here's hell, and we're somewhere in the middle here, and we're hopefully going toward this line, but I don't know, you know, we're kind of wax and wane. And Jesus is saying very clearly here, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it, meaning lose it for the sake of the gospel. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, you're not going to find it by trying to save it. You're going to find it 
by, by going all in with Jesus. For what profit is it to a man, verse 26, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now there's the body, the soul, and the spirit. The spirit is dead until, until the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. That's the, the being born again by the spirit that Jesus talked about. Every, every person, every human being is born with body, soul, and spirit. The spirit's dead and it's dormant until Jesus comes in. The body's alive. That's the part we see. That's that beautiful face of that baby. And then there's the soul, which is the will, the intellect, and the emotions. And that's sort of that part of the person, the soulish part, that we look at the expression of what we might call their personality or their essence. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? for his essence, for his, his being. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with angels, with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works, I believe referring to the second coming of Christ, when that happens at the end of the time of the tribulation. And then he says here, and we'll come back to this next week, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In the next section, at least in Mark's gospel, you come into, again, the transfiguration. And I believe that's what he's referring to, but we're not going to spend time on that this morning. So the Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. Jesus is coming again. And we will receive our rewards when we meet him. When we read these verses in the scriptures, there's so many. First uh, John 3 is always a favorite. When we see him, we will become like him because we'll see him as he is. You see, that's, that's the goal, right? To be like him, to, to be formed into his presence. We desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Or back as it says in verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, you see, who do you say that he is? And do you desire to come after him? Those are the questions you need to answer. Those are the questions every person needs to answer. There's certainly the, the questions that every Christian has to answer. If you've answered the first one, yes, who do you say that I am, that you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, but you've kind of, you know, I don't know about that coming after him part because there's a big, big cost to that. Well, then you've got to square with that. You need to get in the presence of the Lord and pray about that and say, Lord, speak to me about this. Who do you say that I am? And do you want to come after me? Every person has to answer those questions. What is your answer? Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for speaking to us, for ministering to us. And Lord, we, we want to follow you. And Lord, it's, it's hard. We struggle. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with the world. We struggle with all these things. But Lord, speak to us and show us the right way. Show us how to follow you, Lord. Show us how to live for you. Show us how to let go of the things that are so precious and important to us. Reveal those things to us, Lord. And show us what it means to let go so that we can follow you. Show us what it means to to find our lives by finding and following you. Lord, that's what we want. And I believe in my heart of hearts, that every person listening this morning wants to follow you. So, Lord, take 
the weakness of our faith and <clears throat> the, the, maybe the, the weak understanding we have, Lord. And this morning, bring us some maturity. Bring us some understanding. And give us resolve, Lord. And show us how to walk in the newness of life. And Lord, because all these things are, are blessings that you want to give us. Lord, too often we're just holding on too tight to the world. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to, we want to be close to you. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Lord, we look forward to that great day in heaven when we shall see you face to face. And we shall become like you. And the struggle, the striving will be over. And it will be made complete. Until then, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a passion and a zeal for you, Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.